Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the table today. You know, I, I, um, I don't like upsetting people. I don't know if you know about that, that about me. So I will admit, I was watching your faces as you came in, trying to discern who's going to be upset with me this morning. They walk in and see, I have to sit at the table with somebody. And maybe it's somebody I don't know. Anyone? Did I miss anyone that was upset with me this morning? Well, here's the deal. It's like time for our family meal. And sometimes at family meals, you do get stuck beside that uncle. The thing is, is I know that family meals evoke a lot of memories, don't they? Or even a lot of feelings. Maybe some delightful ones. Maybe some dreadful ones. Maybe just some mundane ones. But family meals, and especially holiday family meals, can be very stressful. They can be wondrous. Sometimes they can be both at the same time. So let me ask you, what does a family meal evoke for you? If you could give a one-word shout-out, what does a family meal make you feel or think? Go ahead, throw it out. Togetherness? Oh, one at a time. Bedlam and intimacy. Okay, well, those can come together, right? Talking. Yeah, other ones. Indigestion. Good food. Too much good food, indigestion. (laughs) What else? Arguments. Yep. Love. Lingering. Oh, I like that. Connection. Lots of work. I should hear some amens from <laughs> folks here. Yeah, lots of work. Anxiety, absolutely. I noticed um, uh, on my uh, social feeds right around, it's, it's particularly later November because our American cousins are having Thanksgiving later in November. All these articles come out about basically how how to avoid certain topics at your Thanksgiving meal or how to how to how to how to you know manage the thing that's coming that you maybe can't get out of anyway. So there's lots of you know different feelings, different uh, experiences. But whatever our personal experiences are from our families, and we carry that with us, we can forget that a family meal sits at the very center of our Christian faith, a family meal. It's called a lot of things, depending on your tradition, background, the Lord's Supper, communion, mass, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist. Of course, the word Eucharist is just an English transliteration from the Greek that means giving thanks, a giving thanks meal. But for the last 2,000 years, wherever followers of Jesus have gathered, with very few exceptions, you can find some, 
But with very few exceptions, followers of Jesus have participated in some form of this Christian family meal in some way. And so even today, as we gather for communion, we gather with the communion of saints, a a phrase that's used to describe all those saints, all those followers of Jesus who have gone on to be with the Lord, as well as those who are around us in the world today, past, present, future, dead or alive, all over the globe. We share together in this expression of our faith, our hope, and our love. And so we're going to walk and talk our way through communion today. We don't normally uh, spend the whole message time on this, but I thought it was a a good opportunity to do that. And we're going to look, in turn, how communion expresses faith, hope, and love. And I am going to tie a bit in, not exclusively, but I'm going to draw particular attention to the role the Holy Spirit plays in all of that. Um, And as we do, we'll participate in communion together. So on your tables, there's bread, it's gluten-free, and there's juice in the cups, and we'll have an opportunity to share with each other. Um, If you're visiting here today and you think this is just really weird, you should come back next week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, uh, we're really glad you're here, (laughs) and uh, it's not going to get too weird, Um, and it's just a way that we participate. If you're unsure of things, uh, don't feel awkward, please. Um, Just feel relaxed, feel welcome, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll make this work. How's that sound? Well, the first thing that Christian communion affirms is Christian faith. This is an obvious one, an obvious point. I think that anyone who's been around uh, the church or been around communion knows that this is primary to what's going on when people take communion, when they participate in whatever uh, brand, stripe, variety, church they're part of. The Holy Spirit uses this experience of taking communion together to affirm our faith. Now, the word faith, we know, has multiple shades of meaning, right? And the two of them that I want to draw out here are, first of all, faith as a statement of belief or a fact about something or someone. So in this case, the Christian church uh, believes certain things to be true about Jesus, about his death, about his resurrection. So faith is a statement of fact. But also there is the second shade of meaning, and that is that faith is an expression of trust in someone or something. Now, belief and trust can't be uh, isolated from each other. They're interrelated, of course. Our trust in someone or in something is directly connected to what we think and believe about that person, right? I don't trust that guy because he ripped me off last week. They're connected. Or I know I can believe what the mechanic says because he's always been honest with me. So we can't, though we can't separate them, it is helpful sometimes to pull them apart a little bit and just look at them. What are we, what are we affirming? What are, the, what are those two shades in particular as we come to communion so we can pull them apart? When we come to communion, we are affirming our shared Christian faith. We come to the Lord's table as a statement that we believe in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Now, who in particular are we talking about? Well, not a Jesus who's just been snatched out of the air, some sort of vague idea, but rather this Jesus who was revealed in the Gospels. This particular Jewish man who was born of this particular Jewish woman in this particular Jewish town, this Jesus foretold by the prophets of old 
the Hebrew prophets, who was in fact God's unique, one and only incarnate son. And we come to the table because we believe that this particular Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and he did it for us. He did it as our representative. And then he offered himself up to the Father on our behalf and in our place. We're making a statement of how we believe that he died on the cross for our forgiveness, for our salvation, and that he really died, that he was buried for a short weekend and then rose victorious over death just as he said he would, that that Jesus, this Jesus that had walked and talked and healed and, 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 and proclaimed, this Jesus came back from the dead in real flesh and blood. And that Jesus we believe in. And communion affirms that this Christian faith that is expressed not just by us, not a private opinion that we hold here at the Erickson Covenant Church, but rather something that has been expressed as a fact and believed upon by literally millions and billions of people. It's expressed as a fact, not some fiction or some opinion or some privatized value or some wishful thinking or some metaphorically encouraging idea that some guy sort of, you know, lives on. Not that. We come to the Lord's table together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're saying to each other and to the world, we believe in this Jesus died and rose again. And that's why uh, restating our faith, what we believe about Jesus, understanding what we believe in particular, actually learning about it and, and, and understanding it and looking at it from different angles and maybe hearing arguments against it are all part of the way that we grow in our faith and our understanding of Jesus. And all of that, when we come to the Lord's Supper, is important. But we aren't coming just to say, well, I I think this is true. You know, it's just my idea. You don't have to, whatever. Uh, Or I have some personal interpretation. No, we're affirming something that all Christians believe, that all Christians affirm without exception and have for thousands of years. Now, various creeds and statements have been hammered out that have been used by various groups to express this shared belief. One of the earliest historic creeds is really simple. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. One of the very earliest creed, creedal formulations. And of course, as time went on, longer, more theologically dense statements were created, usually to combat bad ideas, false notions about Jesus in particular, as well as the Spirit and other various things. But they would hammer out a bit more dense statements. They're all meant to continue to restate what we truly do believe about Jesus, about God. In our communion liturgy as a church, we've been using two creeds that are widely used and accepted by the whole church. The Apostles' Creed and what's known under some various titles, but the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. Now, both these creeds were formulated throughout the 4th century uh, for different reasons and some different contexts, but they're beautiful expressions in some basic ways of what we believe and what we share with other believers down through the ages and across the globe today. And so as we begin our family meal today, I want to invite us to declare together our shared faith through the words of the Nicene Constantinople Creed, uh, which will be on the screen. Cameron's going to put it up there for us. 
Excellent. Can we read this all and say this all together out loud? Those of you who are at home, just say it out loud, loud enough for your neighbors to hear. We'll try to. Here we go. Together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Notice how that expresses our shared convictions of what is true about God, about the Father, about the Son, about the Spirit, about the Church, about us. But of course, the Christian faith, we know, isn't just conviction about facts, is it? The facts are important. Without those, it all falls down. But at its core, it moves beyond that to become an expression of trust in this God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we express a trusting faith in this Jesus. If it was only a statement of facts, it wouldn't be enough. But rather, as followers of Jesus, we are expressing that we have entrusted our lives to this one, this Lord, this Savior, who came to us as one of us, who came to love us, who gave himself up for us, who invited us to follow him so that we can repent of being our own leaders and confess our sins and confess our belief in him. We can take up our cross and we can follow Jesus. And so communion has a way of bringing us back to who Jesus is and inviting us to trust him again, to retrust him. In our baptism, we express our faith in Jesus and we receive baptism as a way of entering into the family of God. And if you've not yet received baptism, and yet you'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus, we should talk. Because Christians always should be able to look back to their baptism. It's kind of a one-time event. Communion, on the other hand, is this repeat performance. Not performance, wrong word. You know what I'm saying. We do it again and again and again as a way of reaffirming, remembering our baptism and reminding ourselves and reminding one another and receiving again the love of God. It's this, this, this um, thing that we come back to, this meal, bringing us back to who Jesus is. 
And we reaffirm that trust in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus by the Spirit. So how is the Holy Spirit involved in this affirmation of faith? You know, Jesus told his disciples that in order for him to be with all of us all the time, he would need to go and send his Spirit. That through his Spirit, Jesus would, able to be, would be able to be present to all of us always. In John 14, we read Jesus saying, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. And Jesus does come to us in lots of ways. But when we gather at the table, at communion with brothers and sisters, there is a special way in which Jesus is present to us by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus meets with us here to commune with us in a special way, to connect with us, us together, to offer himself to us again. There's a beautiful way in which he is the host at our table, even today. And we are his family. He's the one pouring the drink and offering the bread. In the Bible, of course, we have four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for those perhaps less familiar, these gospels are more similar. They're called synoptics because they share a similar view, a similar optic of things. They tell the story of Jesus using much of the same stories. In fact, many scholars would think that Matthew and Luke took Mark's gospel and expanded on it, follows his, kind of follows his framework, but gives it a bit more story because Mark is so basic. Well, all three of those stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, relay the upper room communion origin story where Jesus hands out the, the bread and it's at the Passover meal and he, he's re-imagining uh, it with them around himself and the sacrifice that he is about to make on the cross. This meal that he ate with his disciples just before he's betrayed and crucified. And then Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, and that's the passage most often read in communion settings, at least in evangelical churches, he relays a version of this story as well that's very likely based on his companion Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, very likely based on his excellent research. And so we have got four versions of the origin story of the communion meal. Famously, though, John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, doesn't include a communion story in his upper room story. He includes foot washing instead, which some people do, but a lot of people don't. They decided, no, we're not going to go with that. <laughs> Are you glad? Do you want me to come wash your feet right now? No, you don't. Jesus included foot washing, and he actually included a lot more teaching. In jo- John included a lot more of Jesus' teaching. But what we don't get in the upper room uh, in John's version is uh, this is my body business. This is the blood of the new covenant. We don't get that stuff there. What we do have in John's gospel is an earlier story found in John chapter 6 where Jesus calls himself the bread of life and tells everyone they got to eat him and eat his flesh and drink his blood or they can't follow him. Yeah, here's a bit of what Jesus said. From John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He's referring to the manna that, that Moses, you know, back in the day. He says, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, at that point, wouldn't you think, I, I just pause for a moment. At that point, any good Bible teacher would say, oh, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding me. <laughs> Not Jesus. He just makes it worse. He says, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh, I mean, come on. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever eat, feeds on this bread will live forever. And there's a lot going on in this story we don't have time to get into today. Um, you do remember that lots of people left Jesus at this point. They were so revolted by what Jesus was saying here. I mean, talk about not kosher, Jesus. <laughs> so what's going on here? I can't get into the whole story today. It's an amazing story. You should read it. But it's very important for us to realize that John is actually doing some teaching here on communion. You see, for the very early Jesus community who were receiving this story, we know that John's gospel comes later. Matthew, Mark, and Luke came to first-generation followers of Jesus. Most people who were receiving John's gospel were second-generation followers of Jesus. And so these would be people already practicing some way of a communal meal together around the Lord's table. Their understanding and practice of communion would already be in place, and so now John is giving them more teaching. It's very likely these communities had a gospel of Mark or a gospel of Luke or a gospel of Matthew. Maybe some of those lucky guys even had all three. We forget that people didn't have Bibles like we have with all the books in them, right? They had the Old Testament and they had bits and pieces of some letters. So maybe they had the gospels. So John would have assumed they had one at least, maybe three. And so he doesn't repeat that story. What's the point? He gives a whole bunch of new stories. That's why John is so different than the other three gospels. What he does is include this story instead of the upper room story uh, where there's the, you know, the, the original communion meal. And he does it to deepen the experience and understanding of communion for the Jesus followers. Now, what's the point here? What John is helping us through the Holy Spirit understand is that when we eat the bread and drink the juice or the wine at communion, there is a way in which we are actually taking Jesus in, consuming Jesus in some mysterious way. That these words spoken by Jesus, that we are responding to them in faith in the very act of shared communion. I mean, it's not... uh, a coincidence that in a conversation about bread, Jesus then adds wine, blood. These are the communion elements. And so we believe that as we eat and drink this bread and this juice, we're actually taking Jesus in. We're letting him in. We're letting him sustain us. There's an act of faith happening here, and we're letting the Holy Spirit represent Jesus to us so that our faith in him is renewed by the sustaining body and blood of Christ. And this is why, very simply, communion is for trusters, for 
believers, not in a way of barring people who, you know, might messed up or it's not, it's not like that. It's, it's this expression of faith. This is, we believe in Jesus. We, we, we depend on him. We rely utterly on him. This is not just a dead ritual, but a live action. Jesus is really here. And we're receiving his life into us when we eat and drink this meal. Now, in the history of the Christian church, there has been significant debate and division. Whole new denominations. Whole new wings of Christianity have been formed over disagreements of what's happening during communion. How many of you are aware of that? I think so. Lots of you are. Or maybe just tacitly aware as you think, why are there a lot of churches around? Sometimes it's communion. That's the blame. Different understandings of what's going on. Is the bread and juice literally becoming the body and blood of Christ? Particularly after the priest has blessed it. That's affirmed by the Roman Catholic Church. It's called transubstantiation. Or is it just a symbol? Is it just a memory device that we're offered, which was something that was maybe post-Reformation churches more influenced by Zwingli and maybe some of the Anabaptists and others? Or is it something in between? Like, Jesus is present, but the bread's still bread. You can still feed it to your chickens afterwards, and nobody's offended. Maybe some are offended, but most aren't offended. Boy, you're not laughing. You should laugh at that. <laughs> it reminds me of Annie, Annie Dillard once talked about, she was part of a church that was not Catholic, obviously, but was probably a little more on the sacramental side, and she talked about riding her bike down to church one day and reflecting on the fact that Jesus was riding behind her, the bread. And, 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 then, and then she would take home the remainder and feed it to the chickens afterwards, and just this, this you know, bit of a... Yeah, anyway... <laughs> All of you from Catholic backgrounds are utterly horrified at this point. <clears throat> or is it somewhere in between, as I was saying, where maybe taught by some of the Lutherans or the Anglicans, where there is a belief that Jesus is present in some real way, but not that the blood, not that the, 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 the bread or the juice becomes Jesus. So while respecting the diversity that exists within the body of Christ, you know I do. This is actually where the evangelical church landed, broadly speaking, tried to land at least, without getting too dogmatic about it that the truth is somewhere in the middle, allowing for a spectrum of Christian conviction on what is actually happening. We affirm that Christ is present here, really present, truly present. And yet we can't say for sure how exactly he's present, and actually we don't need to. Much like we don't need to understand how all the nutrients and vitamins of the food work in order to benefit from a healthy meal, we believe that Jesus somehow meets us and feeds us through this meal. We believe that Jesus is present and ministers to us, even if we don't fully grasp how. We affirm that he's present because Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with them. And communion, this bread, this juice, while I would say it remains bread and juice, It's not just a memory device. There's something more going on there. That this bread and this juice, when taken in faith and trust, becomes a means of ready grace for us. Now, I realize that I made a grave error in how how long I wrote this message. And so I'm going to um, ask that you bear with me for a few more moments. But I, before we do that, I, I would want you guys to just for a moment talk to each other. I'd like to ask you to share at your tables 
for you at communion, what's been easier for you to focus on at communion? Has it been the facts about Jesus and what's happening? Or has it been the trust or, or the, 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 the way that this is helping you reaffirm your trust of Jesus? Well, what's been significant for you as you take communion? And again, if you're new here or if uh, communion is new to you, um, feel free just to listen. You, no one's forced to speak here, but I want to encourage you to turn at your tables for just a few moments and share what aspect uh, has been easier for you to focus on at communion. Has it been the facts or has it been more the trust side of things? Go ahead and share for just a few minutes. Those of you who are online, I invite you to do the same. Talk about it with each other, or maybe reflect together by writing down. What has been easier for you to focus on? The, the facts part of our faith, what's being affirmed about Jesus, or as an expression of trust in Jesus? So go ahead and do that as well, just for a few moments. All right, I know you guys want to keep talking and keep talking. I invite you to, to, to do that together as you, as you continue. But I, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is, um, you know I can talk faster. I'm going <clears> to, <throat> actually the last, two, uh, the last two sections on hope and love were a little shorter than the faith section, which kind of makes sense because I do think the faith part is primary. Uh, but I hope you got just a taste maybe of where some of you have experienced it, where some of you are from. And uh, you'll continue that conversation. So through communion, the Holy Spirit affirms Christian faith. But secondly, I think that through communion, the Holy Spirit is able to instill hope. When we come to communion, the Holy Spirit gives us a little taste of what's coming, brings it into our present reality. Remember how the Apostle Paul wrote in his chapter on love, that now we see only a reflection in a mirror, then we will see face to face. Now, I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I think in communion, the Holy Spirit invites us to eat and to drink in some sense of the future banquet, that when we come to this table, we're reminded again of our hope that there is coming a day when we will know fully as we are fully known, when we will be reconciled fully to God and to others, when we will be raised in bodies glorified and eternal, when we will enjoy this great kingdom banquet with people from every nation, tribe, tongue. That in the words of our sister Julian of Norwich, that there's coming a time when all shall be well. And all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. I love that. Well, Jesus told his followers to eat and to drink this meal as a way of proclaiming his death until he comes again. And the Holy Spirit brings that future hope to us Throughout our lives, of course, but here at communion in a special way. That communion is a foretaste of heaven's communion, the goal of all creation, when we're truly made right again, and so is the world. And that's something that God does for us. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. And then listen to where he goes. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I love that. Through communion, I believe the spirit reminds us again of what's coming. And that hope orients us. It strengthens us, especially when we're facing difficulties and suffering and hard choices. It 
puts our lives into perspective so that when we come to the table, we're reminded of what's coming. In that sense, the Holy Spirit feeds us with hope. We're filled up at the table and fueled for the days ahead when life still does hurt, when people still die, when injustice still lingers, and even our best intentions seem not to be quite enough. Well, here at the table, the Holy Spirit instills us with hope. And then third, through communion, the Holy Spirit renews our love. First of all, of course, the love of God that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we're brought to this table to be reminded of that. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so here at the table, we can revel in the love of God, this unshakable, unchangeable, unconditional love that God has revealed to us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And we receive the care and the thoughtfulness, the forgiveness and the grace that meets us here in our frailty and in our sin. Know that we are loved. And then, of course, we respond to the one who has loved us first. We express our love to God, our love to Jesus, our love to the Holy Spirit. That's why the meal is often called Eucharistic, right? It's a way of giving thanks. And we worship the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as we come to this meal. There's a, there's a beautiful way in which we raise a glass to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You can, you know. And chew the bread. And we're responding in gratitude to God. There's an exchange of love here as we receive love again. And we give back in worship. This is the essence of that renewed relationship that the Holy Spirit fosters between us. And of course, the Holy Spirit through communion also renews our love for each other. This is one of the missing or maybe you could say neglected aspects of communion or of the ways perhaps we've learned to participate in it. That often Holy Communion has been experienced as something so solemn and so private. But the truth is, so far from that. Communion cannot be fully experienced without each other. And in fact, if we're not in right relationship with each other, we may not even be having communion at all. This is a very practical point. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that is often read during communion, we often fail to realize that the main problem that the Corinthian church had, which led the Apostle Paul to say things like that their communion gatherings, I quote, did more harm than good. Yike. Or... Uh, Again, quoting him, so much so that when you come together, Paul said, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. And and that's, by the way, that's where we get a lot of our New Testament teaching on communion. Uh, What was Paul so upset about? Well, when you read the context, you realize what happened is the rich people who could afford to, you know, roll around all day, maybe literally, they were mistreating the poor by eating all the food before the poor people got off work. Consider most of them were slaves or just worse than slaves, freed people living hand to mouth. They worked long hours, 
When they finally could get together with their brothers and sisters of Christ, they were showing up and all the food had been eaten by the rich slobs who were hanging out all day. This is what was happening. Paul lost it on them. They were allowing the divisions from their culture and their past to come in and divide up the body of Christ so that it wasn't looking any different inside the house as it was outside. Paul went wild. And what we discover through his teaching there is that communion is never, ever just an expression of Jesus' reconciling work between us and God, or maybe, to put a more fine point, me and God. It's always, always, and also an expression of how that reconciling work that has made us one with Christ has also brought us to the table as a newly formed body of Christ. Communion is also between us, between you and me. We can't actually participate in communion when we're at odds with each other, when we despise each other, when we're unwilling to forgive a brother or a sister We're still holding grudges or nursing hurts or letting the culture out there or some political idea or some reigning ideology determine how I treat my brother and sister, determine who's valued and who's not. Well, communion cuts through all of that and brings us all to the table as the one people in Christ through the unifying work of the Holy Spirit, which is why then we must We have to let the Holy Spirit delve our hearts and minds and attitudes. Work us through a bit of our memory of what's been going on in my relationships with others or what I've been carrying as I think about others. In particular, that guy or her. But also broadly speaking, even groups of people, nationalities or ethnicities or political parties or whatever, whatever whatever your thing is. Let the Holy Spirit delve our hearts and minds so that we can be sensitive to the ways where we need to seek forgiveness or we need to offer an apology. We need to make things right. We need to humble ourselves and say, Lord, help me love these people who I think are dumb. Yeah, it's true. Or I just can't stand those people. First of all, the Holy Spirit may have to help you be honest with yourself and then lead you to a place where you can actually let the Holy Spirit renew your love for them. And if there's a concrete thing you need to do, you do it. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a work the Holy Spirit has to do in you. But this is one of the reasons why we not only confess our faith together at communion, but we also confess our sin together. And so as we now come toward participating in communion together, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to say one of the confessions of sin that we say together as a church at communion. So would you stand, and let's look at the screen together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to just delve our hearts and minds, even as we confess this together. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. 
for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And remember, when we confess our sins, and it's appropriate that we receive words of assurance, a reminder that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Be seated. And then just fourth, before we move into communion, the Holy Spirit, I believe, also uses communion to renew our love for the world that he loves. So we receive the love of God, we respond to the love of God, renews our love for each other, and we respond to that. But also for the world that God loves. Just as Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the crowds. Remember that? When he did that many times? He was taken, he was blessed, broken, and given for the world on the cross that's represented here at communion. But we are his body. Those who have claimed to follow Jesus, who have received his spirit, are the body of Christ. And as we come to the communion table, there is some way in which we find the Holy Spirit taking us up. That we are taken up, that we are blessed, that we are broken, and that we are in turn given for the world. That we are sent in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That this meal not only receives us and fills us up, but we are sent out from this table to seek the highways and the byways, the back lanes, the hidden valleys. Seek for those who desperately need to come to this family table and to receive the same nourishing love that we've received. The Holy Spirit, through communion, affirms our faith, instills hope, and renews our love. And so we will participate together today. Today, I'm inviting you to participate at your tables, to pour juice for one another, um, to share the bread, which is gluten-free, as I already said. And I invite you to begin doing that, even as I read these words of institution, again, found from 1 Corinthians 11. So go ahead, serve one another as I read these words. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. If you all have it, join with me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord Jesus, we come to this table today to share in your family meal. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us today, that you would affirm our faith, that you would instill hope in us that fuels us for the days ahead. 
and that you would renew our love, renew our reception of your love and our, our worship back to you, renew our love for each other and for the world. By your Holy Spirit, we know, Jesus, you are present here at this meal. And in some special way today, we ask that you would minister to each one. I pray especially for those who are with us online today or in their homes, that by your Spirit, you would minister to each one of them, that they would know that we share this together today because your Spirit is here, is with us. We give thanks to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your never-ending love. Reveal to us the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you're already at the table, but hear the invitation anyway. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you're weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God. Because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. Come. You may participate as you are ready at your tables. You can share with each other. You can sit quietly for a bit and pray. You can take it. And you can keep eating through the rest of the song as we come back to lead one together. So may the Lord bless you as you take communion today. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.